More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Hi, Julie Panessi here. You know, I think for many people, now that the mandates have lifted uh, in, in certain provinces, in Canada anyway, uh, and elsewhere across the world, which is very good news, of course, but it can give us a false sense of security, I think, about where we've come from and where we're going, and perhaps a false sense of trust that we won't face vaccine mandates or mask mandates again. Um, but it's important for us to keep these conversations going and to keep looking at the evidence and to remind ourselves that as Canadians, in fact, as, as human beings, we have the right, we have the responsibility to look at evidence for ourselves and not just blindly trust authorities, especially when what they're saying doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Over a month ago, Pfizer released what's called now the Pfizer data. This was due to court order. Um, and it contains a lot of information about the effects of the Pfizer vaccine when they started to be administered to the population just over a year ago now. It's called the pharmacovigilance data. It is, however, uh, very intractable, very inaccessible for a non-specialist. And so one of the things I've been trying to do is speak with people who understand how to interpret this data who are experts in the field of medicine and, and data analytics and last week I had the chance to sit down with Eric Payne and Eric Payne is a Canadian pediatric neurologist and researcher specializing in epilepsy and neurocritical care at Alberta's Children's Hospital. Dr. Payne completed his medical training at the University of Calgary at Harvard and at the Mayo Clinic. He's also a father of three young children and I think that makes him particularly poised to understand and, and especially concerned about the coercion that's facing children and their families in Alberta and across Canada these days. And in our chat, we had the chance to chat a little bit about the difference between these mRNA COVID vaccines and traditional vaccines, which I think is something that um, a lot of us don't necessarily understand as clearly as we might or might want to. We also chatted about the link between these vaccines and certain inflammatory health conditions like cancers, and also in general, really the culture of silence and coercion in medicine today that is preventing any physicians from questioning the narrative or for speaking out without penalty. And um, Dr. Payne also gives us a sense of where he thinks we're headed in the coming months. So again, if you enjoy these chats, don't forget to subscribe to the Democracy Fund on YouTube, to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also follow my channel, um, Dr. Julie Panessi on Twitter and Instagram, and I really hope you enjoy this chat. The reason why I wanted to chat with you is because uh, are we two weeks now or bordering on three weeks where this Pfizer data came out? And when you are, I think, a non-specialist, um, which I certainly am, you open up all of these documents containing the Pfizer data and you think, I, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Um, so in some sense, it, it's important for transparency to have that data available, but without people to interpret it for us, it's not going to have impact. We're not going to be able to understand it. So I'm, I'm so grateful to you um, for, for chatting with me about that today, but maybe we can go back a little bit and tell me what, like what did you first think when you heard that this particular set of mRNA vaccines was coming on the market for the general population? And then did you start thinking about or worrying about, or what were your thoughts about um, it coming into the pediatric population? 
Yeah. Um, so you raised a lot of very good points there. Um, you know, similar to you, um, for me, a few months into the pandemic, um, it was the censorship um, and the, the silencing of opinions that that raised alarm bells. And um, you know, we moved back to Calgary uh, a month before the pandemic started, so February 2020. And I was coming at it from a bit of a unique perspective because I think Canadians don't appreciate the media bubble that they live in. Um, and, uh, and so living in the U S whether you like it or not, you get, you get both sides of stories. So I was coming at it from a bit of a perspective where I, my eyes were starting to be open to the fact that a lot of the, the, the media that I was traditionally listening to, um, on, on a lot of issues that I was able to follow prospectively while I was in the States, just were not lining up with facts. So I kind of came into COVID with that suspicion. And then, you know, the public health expertise tells you that, you know, you, you need to focus your protections on those who are most vulnerable. And, um, you know, one of the, the, the basic classes you take in, a, in an MPH, uh, in a public health degree is, you know, socioeconomics determinants of health. So what, what makes you healthy? Um, and, and the lack of, uh, of illness is, is just one of those things, right? I mean, um, having asthma or, or epilepsy or whatever, though that's part of it, but your health incorporates, you know, your socioeconomic health, um, you know, the, your family health, all these things matter. And we learn all of those things. So the idea that we were going to shut down an entire society, um, you know, you could see that the financial devastation alone that was going to cause a lot of harm, that the psychiatric uh, effects were going to cause a lot of harm. And we knew before this thing got to our shores that this was really um, affecting um, the elderly, generally over 70 years with multiple comorbidities. And that hasn't changed. You know, we, with Delta, we had uh, some of those, uh, some of the adults were a bit younger, you know, certainly 50s, 60s, you started seeing more of them in the ICU based on the official data. Uh, but again, most of those had, um, had, had extreme comorbidities. Um, and so, um, and, and that is borne out two years in, the data that we had coming out of Wuhan is, is the same now in terms of who's at risk. Um, and, and so, you know, that really was what started my, um, my suspicion along these lines. And, and, and because of that, I started really reading a lot and looking into a lot of these things, right? Um, you know, the first thing I looked into was, was treatments, you know, in, uh, um, what, what kind of things can we do if this hits my house? Um, or if my patients call me and say that I've got something, what can we maybe do? Um, so those were the type of the things, but then, you know, we knew we had this vaccine coming and, and as a pediatrician, I can tell you, you know, I am not an anti-vaccine person whatsoever. I mean, my children, uh, I've got three young kids are all fully vaxxed, um, with the exception of the, uh, you know, the COVID vaccine. Um, and, uh, you know, I have been fully vaccinated myself. Uh, I mean, I even accepted monthly, uh, not monthly, yearly influenza vaccines as part of my, uh, that were mandatory at Mayo Clinic while I was there. Um, didn't think twice about it. But because I had been seeing this, um, the censorship and this, the, the, this sort of strangeness, how these things were being played out, I was, um, I was more skeptical of these vaccines, I would say, than, 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 than any other vaccine in the past. I mean, the other part of my job, you know, I see a lot of kids whose first seizure or, or who developed autism or something uh, bad happened in their development post a vaccine. I mean, kids get so many vaccines when they're kids, so it's temporarily very likely that we'll see that. You know, kids get vaccines two, four, and six months. Well, febrile seizures, seizures with fever, the most common thing that I would, you know, most common reason a child would seize. So we see that stuff all the time. So I've spent you know, over a decade talking to families about how that was just incidental. You know, you, you unmasked a tendency towards seizures. It wasn't the vaccine itself. You know, so I've been full on 
um, that whole part. So to come out with some skepticism about the MR vaccine and being labeled a, a, an anti-vaxxer just isn't, it isn't consistent with the facts. As these things were rolling out, um, in the back of my mind, I just assumed that when it came time to take them, that I would take them. Um, but what happened was the evidence, especially in the summer, you know, before the vaccine mandates came out, really started to show us that they were not as effective at preventing transmission as they initially claimed. And those of us with some public health experience could, um, could appreciate based on the initial trials that that might be the case. But all you needed to do in August or September um, was look overseas at Israel. You know, so they were on to their third shot. They had a big portion of the population vaccinated. Um, and in September, you know, uh, the majority of their cases, the vast majority were among the vaccinated. Um, and they were, I was able to quote a paper in September, a science article, that 55% of their ICU cases were among the vaccinated. So we had that data in September. Um, and that was right at the time where I think you and I were being um, put into a situation where we had to make those decisions ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, from my perspective, and this ties into your point about the kids, um, you know, if you're going to be doing a societal benefit, if you're taking the vaccine um, to decrease spread and to get rid of this, um, like was claimed, right? I mean, we had the president of the United States telling us that if you take these vaccines, you're not going to get COVID. Um, you know, we were, that was straight out, you know, th that was the terminology that was being. And being he used. was saying, I think it was the message right on the White House website that if you don't take the vaccine, you're going to have a horrible I, I can't remember the wording exactly, but a terrible winter. I mean, it was a very blatant threat. Yeah. No, absolutely. Right. Um, and so, you know, from my perspective at that time, we already knew that from a transition transmission perspective, it wasn't really going to help. Um, and if it was going to help, it was going to have a time dependence. And, and that's what the data shows. I mean, we, we know that after you get your shot, um, you're, you're, uh, well, we won't get into that data right now, but you know, there is some benefit um, so what do you mean by time dependence? Can you explain that for yeah, me? Yeah, so that's, yeah. So by time dependence, what I mean is that if in multiple data sets, and this is including, I've looked at this in the Alberta data set, but this is, you can see it in, in, in studies that were published in Denmark, for instance, these are population-based studies. So you give the vaccine to your population and you follow, you know, how long does this prevent transmission? How long does it prevent you from being in the hospital? How long does this prevent death? Um, and there's a time dependence to that. So it appears that in terms of giving you some benefit from, pre from preventing spread, it's about a two month period, two to three months. Um, and then um, if you get into a serious illness and death, you know, that sort of benefit looks like it's like four or five, six months. Um, so that gets into keeping with the, the reason they want you to get boosted every four to six months is because by four to six months, um, in terms of the, the serious illness and death, uh, a lot of the benefit seems to have waned. And, um, to the point where when you continue to follow these populations out, especially with Omicron, so Omicron was the most recent variant that, that came in in Canada here. This hit us just around Christmas time uh, into January, but worldwide, I think South Africa, it was the second or third week of December that this was sort of, um, this came out. And, and keep in mind, uh, South Africa only has about 30% of its population vaccinated. Um, but what happened with the Omicron data, if you look and you can pull this up yourselves, you know, if you Google the Alberta COVID statistics or the Ontario COVID statistics, um, there was a peak 
um, for Omicron around the time I just I just stated, you were more likely to get Omicron if you were fully vaxxed. So tell, so tell me you why, can divide by yeah, why is proportion. that? So, you know, this is why is that we can we can talk about that, but just in terms of that, you know, I think it's very important for people to understand that because ultimately a big port, a big reason big for, for the ongoing push for vaccines, mandates, being able to travel. I mean, we still can't get on the planes that we talked about is because there's supposed to be some benefit from a transmission perspective, right? Um, and, and we'll talk about, you know, serious illness and disease, you know, how much benefit there is that, and that becomes very relevant for the kids. But if the first point is this thing isn't preventing transmission, then you lose that argument from an ethical standpoint of forcing this onto the population, I think. Um, but what we started seeing was that you, you were more likely to get Omicron if you were fully vaccinated, if you were unvaccinated. That's mm -hmm. not misinformation. You can look that up still right now. You can, you can check by proportion vaccinated by 100,000 proportion vaccinated, unvaccinated. And that data was also, um, we saw this in the UK data. We saw this in Denmark data, Scotland, um, the, the United States, the CDC two weeks ago started showing this. So you follow the, the, this time dependent over, over time. And what it started to show was that you were, not only did you lose prevent, uh, protection from, 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 from getting it and transmitting it, and that you started to lose your protection from serious illness and disease, but you actually were more likely to get Omicron um, at Christmas time. So- uh, Now is yeah, that because, so um, an unvaccinated person or a vaccinated person and an unvaccinated person, if you take one of each, is that because the immunity of the vaccinated person is lower or is it just that there are more vaccinated people? So, you know, that's so a great, that great question. I think the answer is that it's multifactorial, but this, the numbers I'm giving you are based on proportions. So they're, they're based, they take okay. into account vax versus unvaxed. So if you're just looking at the absolute numbers, you know, how many people, like for instance, right now, if you look at Alberta data, how many people, how many new cases are in the triple vaxxed? Well, you got about 45%, 40% of the triple vaxxed new cases, 30% in, in the double vaxxed, um, I mean, 10 to 15%. So you can see the, um, uh, the absolute number is going to be huge. So the, the fully vaxxed people are, are, are accounting for the majority of COVID right now because 85% of our population, mm -hmm. that's right, 85% of our population is vaccinated in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so the absolute number is going to be, if the vaccine was working, that wouldn't be the case, you know, from, from prevention. But we, we've already, we've all swallowed this, right? This was not supposed to happen. But now we're like, oh yeah, it makes sense because, you know, there's more vaccinated people. Well, we shouldn't even be in that situation. But proportionally speaking, if you account for how many, 100,000 100, cases vaccinated versus unvaccinated, you look proportionally, you were more likely to get Omicron um, in multiple data sets. And I think that's part of the reason why you had over a dozen countries in the last month that have completely done a 180 on their mandates, not just the vaccine mandate, but also on the on the green card. Which seems to make an awful lot of sense, right? When we started looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the real life play out in Israel, as you mentioned, late last summer in, in September, and now we see even people like Fauci and Walensky are sort of backing off and saying, yeah, well, they're not reducing transmission. And then we start to look at, well, what what is the ethical argument that's left to keep these mandates in place? Mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that that fact that the vaccines are not reducing transmission is not getting the uptake it needs to the people who are making the decisions 
or there's another kind of argument at place, which is um, a public health resource argument, right? Which is that, well, if you are unvaccinated, you're more likely to get serious mm -hmm. COVID. That will impose a heavy burden on the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you have an obligation to the system to get vaccinated. What do you think about that kind of argument? Well, you, you, yeah, you just laid out their second argument. Um, mm. And I can I can touch base that just, just before I just answer that, I'll just very summarily answer your question about why it is the negative efficacy. So if 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 that is a real phenomenon, if the if if the proportional number is actually you're more likely to get it, why is that? So, and a lot of people who have been censored for the last two years, I've been listening to some very very smart people who who know the immunology, who worked even in Pfizer, people like Gerd Vanderbosch people like uh, Professor Luc Montagnier, uh, Mike Eden, have been warning, even the CDC was aware, they were looking at this data themselves, on a per, they were supposed to be anyways, prospectively, that you could have an element of vaccine-induced enhancement. So somehow the vaccine itself is inducing enhancement of the disease, is lending itself to higher uptake. And where would that be? So we have terms like antibody-dependent enhancement, where you know an antibody uh, that that binds to the virus um, that was produced because of the vaccine. You know, so you produce an antibody to the vaccine, which was a spike protein months ago. Now you see the real virus, but your antibody can only touch part of the vaccine, right? So you got your the virus going around. Well, you know, it's touching this, and by able to only partially, you know, not sterilizing that effect, and you can actually induce and, and enhance its uptake. There are things like original antigenic sin, where you, you know the first thing that you see, your, your your immune system gets trained to recognize it in a biased fashion. There's things like immune exhaustion. So there are multiple pathophysiological mechanisms through which that makes makes makes. Does that sense. mean that if you're vaccinated and this initial sort of two month period has worn off, does that mean that you're more likely to get COVID or you're more likely to get serious COVID or both? So with respect to Omicron, we could say that you were more likely to get Omicron. Um, okay. With respect to the, the, you know, the serious illness disease, which is the second part of that, you know, the, the resources and, and, and ethics standpoint, I don't think we can, we, we can't say very much at this point. So there, there are ways that, and why do I say that? So part of the reason is the government databases that we have, they blend, if you look at, if you look at the hospitalizations and mortality, they often blend it over 120 days. They give it to you over three months. So separating out what was what was still the Delta variant going into December and what was Omicron, it's yeah. very tough because there were still a lot of Delta people that were in that Omicron wave. And as we've gone further away, um, that you know has been less and less. We we know that Omicron caused less serious illness and disease. It didn't mean nobody ended up in the ICU with Omicron, but if you if you look at their own graphs and I could you know show these to you because you can you can you can they've they've got them in a way that they they have deaths underneath it. So you can see that what happened with Omicron, you know, the number shot up, but the deaths didn't. So it just wasn't right. as it wasn't as serious. So that did it actually protect against serious illness and disease for Omicron? And uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, there's still a claim that it was quite substantial, but I don't know that you 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 can say that. And it's hard looking from the outside at it. What you can say is. Places like the UK two weeks ago, who are ahead of us have been in vaccine, you know, 90% of the deaths happen in the fully vaxxed. So, you know, the so same way in September when we started. Like, like this is just blows my mind, Eric, because if I if I was a public health official, I think what I would think is that, huh, well, we seem not to be getting something right here. I mean, at the very least, I would be thinking that these vaccines are not immune immunity makers. 
right? They're, they're not. So if that's the case, then, oh boy, we better put our resources back into the treatment. You know, we better figure out because we don't have treatments for these things that we've been thinking the vaccines would, 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 would get us out of. What did Albert Einstein why, say? Why does it not matter when we have this data, right? That shows that whatever percentage, it doesn't matter if it's like 3%, right? Of, of people who are fully vaccinated are getting COVID. Why is that not mat making a difference at the public health level? It, it, it matters. It depends on the country that you live in right yeah, now. Yeah, right, right. You know, you know, so, I mean, you know, Sweden, for instance, they, they never approved the vaccine in five to 11 year olds. So, you know, mm. you can say what you want of anything that's coming out of my mouth, but, uh, you know, other countries have used this data to make the complete opposite decision. Right. Um, you know, as I said, more than 12 countries have dropped all mandates and yet, you know, you know, we still can't fly within Canada without, without being vaccinated. So, you know, why these basic numbers, like, why is it population doesn't know one of the just take a step back one of the most frustrating things from a public health perspective for me in this um we knew the cdc director walensky dr walensky michelle walensky in august if not july had said no it was definitely july what these vaccines don't do any longer is prevent transmission so we, we had that information in the summer right and anybody following the data into this, we knew that at least a third of the people getting getting the COVID were were in the fully vaxxed. and that was an underrepresentation because there was a there was a sampling bias. If you had if you were fully vaxxed, you had bought into the narrative that you were bulletproof from COVID. You were not getting tested. The people getting tested in higher proportions were the vaccinated. That was part of why that that was there. But the public health message, which is which was which was crucial, was being honest with people. If you are fully vaxxed, you can still get COVID. If you get symptoms, you need to recognize those. You need to be take treat them seriously. You may give that to somebody else still, right? But the narrative, September, October, November, as they were still trying to push people to get vaccinated, was that these things are still largely bulletproof, even though um, we knew factually, and, and people had even admitted sometimes um, in, in different interviews and stuff that these things weren't working. But the public health message, what was still being placed on radios and, and TV was that and I saw this with friends and all sorts of things. They, they, they still felt they were bulletproof. And well, it's um, the, we knew that that was not. The messaging about the so, COVID so not only is, is piggybacking on the messaging about sterilizing vaccines, the other, steriliz other sterilizing vaccines, right? Yes. I think, because I think the way people speak about the COVID vaccine is, oh, well, you get a smallpox yes. vaccine, you get, um, and that means that you will never get smallpox. So they hear yeah, the no, right. vaccine, right? And attached to the COVID set of products. They think, oh, that will mean that I'll never get COVID. And, I, and I, I'm curious about the, the weird kind of cognitive dissonance that's happening when people um, mm -hmm. do get uh, COVID after getting vaccinated or they hear of people get it. And the one common response I'm seeing is that, well, my symptoms were not very severe because I got the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy um, and that I, I've heard that a lot, um, you know, so the, the, the reality is if you look at um, how many um, people with COVID ended up hospitalized, if you look at the Alberta number, I think it's like 3.5%. Now that's an inflation because we know half the people who had COVID never had symptoms. And so we're not testing everyone. We don't have the actual denominator of how many people had COVID. Uh, but of those who tested positive, 3.5%. So bef this was so before vaccines, um, your risk of being in hospital from COVID was under 5%. There's there there is no no doubt about that. So you had a 95% chance of getting COVID and being fine. 
you know, so to all those people who think, well, it's because of the vaccine that I did fine. Well, you, you had a 95% chance of, of that to begin with. And, and, and if you look at your individual, you know, if you're, if you're under the age of 70 with no risk factors, especially if you don't have diabetes and especially if you're not obese, your chance of ending up seriously ill from COVID is basically zero. It's a statistically zero. So, um, you know, going back to the ethics of, of filling this in, well, if, if my risk of being seriously ill is statistically zero, um, and this thing doesn't stop the transmission of disease, um, how am I benefiting anybody in society? Um, you know, and, and to the resource part, I've, I've gotten very tired of listening to that argument from their side, um, and their side being, you know, generally leadership and, and government officials, because, you know, I've got slides on this. I mean, when, when, the, you, when, when the pandemic hit, Alberta has got about 400 ICU beds. Um, they talked, Alberta Health Services and the Kennedy government talked about increasing this to over a thousand beds, right? Which made sense. I mean, if we're gonna be dealing with a pandemic, we're gonna to have to increase beds. And I can tell you as a medical student here in Calgary, I used to see patients waiting in, in purgatory, which was you've already been seen in eMERGE and, and been diagnosed and you need to go up to the hospital uh, ward. We don't have a bed for you yet. Um, and so you have to sit here um, you know, on a bed in the hallway waiting to get your bed. So we've had resource issues since early 2000s when I got involved in the system here in Alberta. Um, what has not happened since the pandemic has, in, has gone along, they have not increased those bed capacities in any sort of meaningful way. We, we still have 400 beds in Alberta. If you go and you look at the Alberta statistics, you can actually look at ICU capacity. They've got a capacity link under the COVID statistics and they give it to you by percentage. They also give it to you by 400 beds. At no point do they get over 400 beds. I almost got there with Delta. So this idea that this, this resource uh, problem, is, it's not a new problem. Um, and and um, I have not seen, you know, based on their own statistics, I have not seen how our, our numbers of COVID in Alberta, for instance, you know, they didn't double or triple or overwhelm our own ICU capacity. Whereas the people telling us to take these shots, whatever, they haven't done, in my opinion, their job in terms of increasing that capacity. Um, well, you know, if we two, talk two, about- two, two years in, right? This is not, talk this about is not COVID 2020. Yeah, I was just going to say, if we talk about the money for a minute, um, so Pfizer made $37 billion last year from the COVID vaccines. And I forget what the, I forget what the, I forget what the quant, you know, what the total amount is that the Canadian government has spent on the total set of COVID vaccines. And I don't know what the Alberta numbers are, but it would be very interesting to compare the numbers between what Alberta, for example, has spent on the COVID vaccines and what they would have need to spend in order to um, increase those, those bed numbers, those ICU bed numbers, right? My, my very strong suspicion is that the numbers would not be anything like one another, um, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, they've all done it so differently, right? Because everything else has been so different from place to place. Why wouldn't the, the way that they funded this thing be, the, would it be different as well? Yeah. Um, can we talk about some Pfizer data for, for a little bit? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And the, I, um, I think that, you know, in my mind, this to the Pfizer part, just, you know, the take back, it goes back to your question about the censorship, I, you know, um, from two years ago. Um, mm -hmm. The Pfizer data, what people need to know is that Pfizer went to court to, to try to hide this for 75 years. Um, yeah, I don't think people know that. To try to hide this for 75 years. Yeah, so they, it was only because of, uh, of, of push and, and, and lawyers that we got access to this. The judge said, no, you can't have 75 years to drop these 80,000 pages that you gave to the FDA and CDC to make the decision on whether or not these vaccines were safe and effective. You have to release that. Um, and so what they've released is only a portion of it. 
they're, you know, every month they're going to be releasing things into August and we're not going to be getting uh, the majority of it until later. So the first dump of data um, that we got is only, is only a portion of that. And um, the, 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 the paper out of all that dump, and you, there's, there's um, places where you can find this stuff and read the source documentation, but there's a 36, there's a 36 a page uh, document where they, um, uh, they go through the adverse events that Pfizer heard about themselves. This was um, people internationally who had taken the vaccine um, contacting Pfizer to say that they had a, a side effect from the vaccine. Okay, so just before you get into that, I just, if you could explain to people where is, so this is what's called pharmacovigilance data, right? This is right. Um, data that Pfizer is getting after the vaccines have been given to real people once, once it's come to market, right? Mm -hmm. And that's different from the trial data that came yeah. out a while ago that the Canadian COVID Care Alliance did that video about more harm than good, mm -hmm. right? So, so can you explain a little bit about like, where does this pharmacovigilance data come from? Is it from all over the world? Is it all age groups? Do we, was it a certain period of time? Like where does this yeah. numbers come from? So, so with respect, so you, you, yeah, you brought up a couple of excellent points there. So um, this is, this is, this is what would be called sort of passive surveillance. So we're relying on the people who had an side effect to contact Pfizer to okay. tell them they had a side effect. Those okay. people may have already contacted, you know, if you lived in the U.S., you'd be more likely to use one of the adverse reporting systems or one of these other databases that captures that stuff. Um, so, you know, Pfizer admits right in the first paragraph, first page, it talks about its limitations. One of the limitations is it doesn't understand, it doesn't know what the true underrepresentation factor is. It knows it's only getting a portion of the adverse events. These adverse events were for the first three months of rollout. So from December 1st, 2020, to um, February 28th, 2021. This is only three months of data. Um, and basically the first three months before we even had this in Canada, right? I mean, there are very few people getting vaccines in Canada in February, 2021. Mm. Um, so this was really early. This was only the first, first few months. So one question is how come we don't have the data from six months, from a year? You know, why we only released the first three months? I mean, do you think Pfizer after trying to hide this stuff in court is gonna release the most damaging stuff first? Or are we gonna see that later in August? Um, I mean, there, there's no reason why they don't have the data beyond three months, but they presented it to us that way. In terms of who this affects, it's, it's all ages. There is actually, there are just under 200 kids, 17 and under. So how kids got the vaccine in the first three months of rollout, I don't know, because um, that shouldn't have been a demographic. Was it wasn't approved for kids at that point, but maybe there were 17, eight-year-old teen. I mean, I don't know, but there's, I think, 175 kids that were reported to have taken it. Um, the majority are in the sort of three to 50 year old range, but that's also, you know, that's the biggest portion of society is in that sort of middle range. Um, so they're across all ages. It's in the first three months of rollout and that was international. So they even divide the data by country. You can go and see which countries reported the most side effects. Um, and yeah, I'm very curious and I don't think there's any way that you can know the answer to this or we can know the answer, but I'm just wondering, you know, this data that Pfizer was getting back, to what degree was it really capturing the actual number of adverse events that were happening in the population? Because as you see, this is a passive reporting system. So someone has to have had an event, believed it was possible that it was linked to the vaccine, and then figure out that it could or need to be reported. 
um, do the actual reporting, have success at reporting. And, and the reason I'm a bit skeptical about that is because we know that in Canada, um, physicians who, and maybe yourself, but people like Patrick Phillips have said that when I try to report adverse events, it's it's a very, it's an uphill battle. Um, it's time consuming. I don't get paid for doing it. The reports are returned saying this is not linked to the vaccine. So it's interesting to me that that there are there's any adverse event data that went back to Pfizer given all those obstacles. It's it's um so these, these were this it's interesting I, I can uh, there's absolutely an underrepresentation and in in terms of what the factor is I don't think anybody can say that for sure especially not with this Pfizer data um, there's no way you can figure that out from the Pfizer data because one of the first things that Pfizer does in the report is they actually black out the number of doses that they're basing it on so they they remove the denominator so you can't actually figure out what the incidence is. You know, so we like had, percentage. you know, high because, you know, yeah. So let me just, you know, just to run through, they had, they had um, 4,000, 42,086 case reports. Um, more than about two thirds of those, a little less than that, were medically confirmed. Um, and they had 1,223 deaths. That's what they found in the first three months. But I can't, we don't know how many people received the, va the, the vaccine in those first three months. So I can't say, okay. Right. Uh, I take 1,223 deaths and I divide it by 100,000 people who got the vaccine and now I've got a rate. Um, they're just giving you the, 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 the numbers. So they, and they, they purposely blacked that number out, um, which is an interesting factor. Is that not sort of contravening the court order about releasing the they, information? They explained it too. Uh, I had it up here earlier, but they, you know, it was some nonsense about the, um, it being misinterpreted and being multiple variables. And, you know, they, they basically don't want people um, doing the math. They don't want people doing, you know, so it's, it's like that New York Times article that came out a couple of weeks back um, showing that the CDC was hiding data that it was, it was reporting to us. They were not showing us all the data. This was in the New York Times. And, uh, and the reason CDC gave was because basically they don't think we're smart enough to handle the data and they don't want that data to be misconstrued and, and promote vaccine hesitancy. But you know, the, 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 if, if there was nothing to be hesitant about, you would just be honest with the data. But <laughs> you know? it would then actually go, be good go for to... their marketing, right? If, exactly, if was... <laughs> right? And then you want to get rid of the vaccine. I mean, the NSERC, one of the big funding mechanisms here in Canada, they gave out like 20 different $50,000 um, uh, grants for, for COVID vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. um, this was just a few months back. I mean, you want to stop vaccine hesitancy. Let, let's have an honest conversation about these data, right? But to your point about the active versus surveillance, so so Pfizer, because this is not the first time Pfizer's tried to hide the, hide the data. So in their in their phase one trial, so the you know in the original trials in the adults, so forty thousand people in the Pfizer trial, forty thousand in the Moderna, half of them received placebo, half of them received um, the shot. The primary outcome, what they were measuring, was how many people got COVID uh, with a positive test. Um, they have to follow those people. So when you're in a trial, you have to, the company has to actively, that's the active surveillance, has to actively follow these patients and you have to look for these side effects. Um, and so in an active surveillance model, you're going to pick up more side effects than you will in a surveillance model like, you know, the Pfizer data that we're talking about right now, which is passive. You're relying on people to bring it. In the active, right. the company doing the study themselves that are supposed to be following this stuff and, and, and giving you a real number about it. So they would possibly uh, pick up on the fact that you've had a heart attack or a stroke and that it might be linked to the vaccine, right. whereas you might not. 
they probably in some studies in some studies what they would do is they would do like monthly ekgs so heart rhythm strips to see okay where did you know they go a step further they they go not just to be not just to the you know um giving symptoms they do active surveillance in terms of lab work in terms of other tests to make sure we're not missing hidden side effects um the six month data so you know most people don't realize that you know one those original trials um they they only the primary outcome was only positive illness and a positive test. There wasn't a single person in that 40,000 trial who got to hospital with COVID, not a person, not a single person. Um, and so the, I always find that, that pretty, pretty interesting. So, you know, cause a lot of people think, well, yeah, we know these things stop serious illness and disease, but that was not one of the primary outcome measures in these, in these vaccine initial trials, but they reported the data in the new England journal of medicine papers for the first two months. So when you were given that 95% efficacy relative risk reduction, um, that was based on the two-month data. And as we mentioned a little earlier ago, there is absolutely a signal there, some benefit for transmission in the first two months. But if you look at that transmission signal at three months, four months, five months, six months, it goes away. Um, and so they only presented the first two months. So the first thing, the first data Pfizer tried to hide was their six-month trial data, their active surveillance data on the initial trial. And that's what's captured in the Canadian COVID care line. It's more harm than good. Um, because what they found at six months was that there were six more deaths in the in the in the vaccine arm than the placebo? So there were six more people who died who received vaccine in Pfizer's active surveillance than in the placebo group. So right. let me just just to put that in kind of plain language, does that mean that six people died? um after taking the vaccine when they most likely wouldn't have if they didn't take the vaccine is that what that means i mean you you cannot say with, with you know it's a great you know i'm glad you asked that you can't say that those people all died from the vaccine um i think in, in fact it, i think a couple of those patients two of them died from covid uh interestingly <laughs> enough uh, there actually were two people who died in the vaccine arm of covid um, so, um, but, you know, you, you should be asking yourself questions about, you know, who are these people that are dying, you know, you and know one why? of the problems and why exactly. And so, you know, one of the issues I have with the Pfizer data that they just released, not only did they hide the denominator data, but, you know, we, we see that there are um, almost 30,000 women who reported side effects, 9,000 men. So there are threefold higher instances of side effect in women than men, but they don't have data on almost 3,000 patients. So you think about that. You've got 1,200 patients that died. Um, you've got these serious adverse events, and Pfizer hasn't even done the due diligence to determine whether or not these patients were male or female. And they haven't gone in to do the due diligence on, you know, maybe you don't have the, the, the resources to look at 40,000 cases in the first three months, but you should have the resources to look at 1,200 deaths. You know, well, so they have their $37 billion to work with. <laughs> That's right. So they're certainly financially not, uh, uh, not, not, not as well. I mean, so there's, there's not, there's missing data. There's data that's, that's purposely hidden in that, in that uh, data itself. Um, and then you get these, this sort of big number, 40,000 side events, 1200 side effects, uh, uh, adverse events, and you've got um, 1200 deaths. Then you've got what a lot of people are showing is that they, they ended that, that document ended with nine pages of adverse events. So there's like over 1200 different adverse events that have been described during that, that period of time. Can you say um, a bit more about those? I mean, are these, um, are these neurological? Are they cardiovascular? Is it a mixture? Everything. Are they serious, mild? Just They're everything. They're absolutely everything. Um, you know, and so things as, you know, I, I read this weekend, um, Mayo Clinic, um, the, the gentleman there, physician who's in charge of the vaccine, he developed 
ringing in his ears called tinnitus after he took the vaccine. Um, and we hear that from people um, post-COVID. Some people post-COVID get ringing in their ears too. Um, but it seems to be, I mean, I know, I know a couple, I know, I know two individuals in my small circle that developed ear ringing um, after the vaccine. And so, um, and this, this male professor is calling for, um, you know, uh, can we have a more transparent discussion about the side effects? So it's in things as simple as that, you know, you can imagine uh, that having ringing your ears all the time, how annoying that could be, but it also includes, you know, um, things that may not have nothing to do with the vaccine itself, you know? Um, so it's not like, because everything in those nine pages, you, you can't say that everything in those nine pages was related right. to the vaccine. Um, but some but of them they're, are, they're, are very severe. Like I'm looking at the list here and things like uh, acute kidney injury, brainstem thrombosis. I don't know what that is, but I'm thinking I'm going to try very hard not to get that. It sounds very bad. <laughs> cardiac arrest, cardiac failure, central nervous system, vasculitis, neonatal death, deep vein thrombosis. I mean, these are not, I, I think one thing we hear a lot is that, oh, well, sure, there are some adverse events from the COVID vaccines, but it, th these are things like um, injection site um, uh, inflammation, redness, or, you know, mm. rash, they go away quickly. Yeah. Well, that's not what this, this list looks like. No, that, that list has got, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of very scary diagnoses on it for sure. I mean, we, we know, um, there are definitely adverse events that we recognize, um, as being affiliated with the vaccine. Um, and a lot of them are things that can ha happen with the virus itself. Um, and so, but you got to remember that if half of people who get COVID don't have any symptoms and 80% who have it only have mild symptoms, your likelihood of developing these bad things when you get exposed to the virus itself are lower. The vaccine itself, it's, it's pumping these millions of, of doses of, into you. Everybody gets exposed to those things. We know the vaccine causes clots and the virus can cause clots. So things like thrombosis, you said. Um, so, you know, we get, uh, we, we, it can also cause bleeding. You know, there's a vaccine-induced thrombosis, thrombophilia. So VIT is a new diagnosis with respect to um, the vaccine itself. Um, that was the reason that the AstraZeneca got pulled from the Canadian market was because we were seeing those clots. One in 58,000 risk of clots, it got pulled. And yet the, one of the other risks that we know is myocarditis, right? That's got a ton of publicity. We could do a full hour on myocarditis. But the, the bottom, I, I won't, <laughs> but, but what we found, you know, for instance, after vaccines came out and we started giving these to kids, we found that the risk of myocarditis was like one in 5,000 as high, if not even higher, if post-Moderna. So in Canada right now, they recommend if you're under 30, you know, that you should be getting the Pfizer because Moderna has a higher risk of myocarditis, inflammation around the heart muscle or pericarditis, inflammation around the sac, around the heart. Um, and so... Um, you know, that, that's associated with, with the vaccine. It's also associated, you know, with, with COVID itself. Um, and, and, and so there, there are things we know there. There are other things long-term, you know, that are, that are huge X factors. I mean, so let's see, I think about it this way because I find this so, when we, when we were first told about these vaccines, right? And let's keep in mind that these vaccines, the definition of vaccine changed in, in September. They had to update the definition of vaccine because these mRNA vaccines were not cutting it as vaccines. You have to prevent transmission by 50%, which it wasn't, wasn't doing. So they changed the definition of vaccine. But we were told that this thing gets injected into your arm. It stays in your arm. Like you, like you said, you get some swelling, some irritation locally. Um, it, it, it is in the mRNA vaccines, there's either a fat bubble in the, um, the, the Moderna or the Pfizer, or it's a virus, uh, uh, an adenovirus, um, as in the, the AstraZeneca, 
and the J and J. But the bottom line is it's a delivery system to deliver some genetic material for you to produce a spike protein. And that spike protein that your genetics produce, that your, your system produces, um, is based on the spike protein that was in the original Wuhan strain. So the strain that existed two and a half years ago upon which they made this vaccine, which no longer is in circulation, um, is what you are still producing when you take a booster right now. You are boosting yourself with the spike protein to the Wuhan virus. Um, and we know that Omicron, for instance, had like 26 changes in the genetics around that spike protein. And so it just didn't get recognized by our immune system because it had, it had changed genetically away from what we represented. The point to give you the background on that is it's supposed to get into your arm. It's supposed to produce the, the spike protein in your cell, in the cytosol of your cell, through your ribosomes. And then it's supposed to present it on, the on, on the, your, your cell surface for a couple of days. So, um, and it, it, your immune system is supposed to recognize it, form an immune response to it, then it goes away. Okay, that's what we were told last a few days, there's no reason to be worried about long-term effects, all that stuff. Well, what do we know in the last six months? Well, we know that this thing gets everywhere in your body. You know, when I wrote uh, my paper in September, uh, uh, Byron Bridle had obtained through access to information, Pfizer Japanese data that showed the animal models this was getting everywhere. Well, we've got Moderna own paper now showing the same thing that included um, circulating in the brain. And we, we also have human data where healthy volunteers in Boston got the vaccine and they followed spike protein in their blood for, for weeks. So we know that it does travel everywhere. We know it does get in the brain. Um, we were told, you know, as I say, just, it's just going to hang on the cell surface. Well, that, 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 that's not, not the case. We have studies to suggest that the spike protein can last over a year, circulates over a year in your system. Is that responsible for some of the long COVID? Because, you, you know, it's still there post-virus uh, itself. So it doesn't just stay there for a couple of days. It doesn't just stay there for in, in the one spot. Um, and then they told us, well, you know, don't worry. This thing can't get into your, your cell nucleus. It doesn't get into your cell nucleus, which is where the, all of our genetics is the information for who we are as a human, make all the differences that make us who we are, are housed in the nucleus genetics. And we were told, well, it can't get into the, the nucleus. Well, we had a study two weeks ago telling us that this thing gets into the nucleus. And it was in an in vitro study, meaning it was in a cell study looking at liver cells only. Um, but they found, uh, you know, a very, very interesting pathological mechanism through which that happened. It upregulated a protein, which caused upregulation in reverse transcriptase, which is an enzyme that allows the mRNA to become DNA. And they found that it localized within the nucleus. They didn't show that it integrated within the nucleus, meaning it didn't incorporate itself into your own genetics. They didn't show that. They show that it got into the nucleus. And I'm not saying this is getting into everybody's nucleus is telling it, but I'm telling us, telling everybody that, you know, they told us this absolutely didn't happen. This was debunked. Right. There's no way. So and, we need to know that it's things, a risk. It's a possibility. And because the, these things are a risk, all the unknowns that we haven't talked about yet, like you asked, does it knock down your immune system? Well, there are several papers now showing that the innate immune system is negatively affected is decreased by these vaccines. You mean it, overall in terms of, not just in terms of your exposure, your, your risk from getting COVID, but are you, I mean, is there evidence to suggest that taking one of the COVID vaccines also gives you a less robust immune system overall? So it's harder to fight off flu, even things right. like cancer or. Well, and that, so one of the, that's exactly. So one of the things that our immune system does is it keeps things like cancers and, and other infections at bay. So like. You mentioned inflammation earlier, you know, you're 
your special your specialty sort of focuses on inflammation. Yeah. So I wanted well, to ask you a little bit more about that. Oh, absolutely. You no, know, so I see, you know, I see kids where the inflammatory system gets is out of whack. Right? You, you get exposed to a virus like everybody else. And for some reason in that kid, it, it takes off and hits this immune system and the inflammation drives seizures and we get all, all these things. Um, what we're seeing uh, and with evidence, uh, and, and I'm saying this is, you know, these are absolute, but I'm saying this, these are peer reviewed papers that are in the published view now that we, we can't not be speaking about this. If you wanna have a, a, an honest conversation about children, notwithstanding what we talked about in terms of transmission against Omicron and, and illness and severity, we really need to, to balance that with the unknown risks. And you were trying to appease us with the, you know, don't worry about the unknown risk because this thing stays in your arm, doesn't circulate, doesn't get into the brain, doesn't get into the nucleus. And now all those things look like they may not be true. So we really need to be sure. And there's studies showing that the innate immune system, so, you know, we won't get into an immune system discussion, but the, 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 the bottom line is some of the, 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 the cells, these are the, the formal name for some of these things are called toll-like receptors. Uh, and there has been evidence for two in specific that, that, that keep, an, uh, keep a lookout for cancers and other uh, inflammations at bay. Those are, those are um, get, get changed. There's other studies showing that, um, that, that uh, other modulators within the innate immune system are affected like TNF, uh, tumor necrosis factor. You know, I was evidence. just, I was just going to say that I was just reading over the weekend about, you know, spikes overall in the population in terms of uh, kidney disease and, um, and cancers of various kinds. And I, I, I'm imagining that only time will tell whether or not there's a connection between the vaccines and these things. But of course, time can tell only if we do our due diligence now, right? And we follow yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, and so the, the immune system part is one that there's also, you know, um, some good evidence, Dr. Stephanie um, Seneff, who is a senior scientist at MIT, has um, um, brought forth um, sub evidence, some cases of, of acute de neurodegeneration or dementia, where, you know, there's a bad brain um, process that takes place as, as a result of this. You know, there's, we, we know this thing goes to, to the ovaries and, um, uh, and to some of the reproductive organs. Um, the idea that this has been, you know, we, we don't know what that impact on fertility is, is going, going to be. But to pull this thing back to the Pfizer, Pfizer data, you know, and, and in terms of, you know, you're saying increased risk of cancer, those, those numbers are starting to come, come back out. So we, we've got insurance actuarial data, like the Indiana, uh, there's an Indiana uh, CEO of an insurance company suggesting yeah. that uh, overall more mortality for the healthy people, you know, 18 to 65 was up 40% you know, which is in, in, in uh, you know, he said a 10% increase was a one in 200 year event, catastrophic event. We were up 40%. Then two weeks ago, similar data from Germany, not too that's long. right. And did you, did you hear what happened to that guy? To the CEO? No. Who, he was no. fired. He was fired after a, within a week of saying that stuff publicly, he lost his job. Right. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I, th those signals are being seen um, in, in those in industries that, 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 excess all-cause mortality is up. Now, you can't just say necessarily that these are all due to the vaccines. I mean, we've done a lot of bad things to humans over the last two years in terms of, you know, the lockdowns, all the, all the, this, the psychiatric illness, suicides. Um, there's going to be all the chronic illnesses that people have not been having surveilled. You know, who's, you know that first year, my hospital was empty. People weren't showing up for their normal things without they're going to get COVID. So there's all sorts of reasons why all-cause mortality, and a lot of studies have looked at this um, data saying that, yeah, all-cause mortality was increased last year, not 2020. It was up a little bit, but last well, year- Well, I remember when the higher. insurance data came out from the states that the response of um, 
was it one of the CEOs from one of the companies said, well, that's because we've had increased COVID deaths. And so we're going to increase people's premiums if they're unvaccinated because they're at a greater risk for getting COVID. That was kind of the narrative that came out from at least yeah. one of the, right? Well, so the narrative with this most recent Indianapolis is a complete opposite. So this was the, the, the data, these were independent as well of, of COVID mortality. You couldn't, you couldn't blame, you, you can go back and look at the mortality data with respect to COVID. The, the most recent COVID care alliance video does a very nice job on that, showing that um, cases and, and deaths related to cases decoupled, meaning, you know, as you increased your cases, you weren't having an increase as a death that that stopped happening last summer. Um, and so, you know, there, there's, I, I would encourage you to watch, watch that sort of video as well. So the idea that, you know, the 2021 um, is, is all COVID related, I don't think, you know, you, it, it's, it's all comers, but again, I mean, there's a signal there and, and in general, we're not allowed to talk about that's not a something that that's being discussed in the media. I mean, I mean, if, if that, if that signal is there, you know, why is it there in all these other jurisdictions and yet somehow in Canada, we're missing it in our surveillance system. Right. Um, and that, that's, you know, but so the, the last thing I'll say about the Pfizer data um, is that, you know, ultimately this is not, it's not been, it, it's not new data. Uh, you know, it's, it's new in the sense that, yeah, they went, they tried to hide it and it shows all these adverse events, but we knew that these things now. Um, were not as safe. It, yeah, the, the, the idea that these things were not as safe as they were being sold um, goes back to the summer um, of, of 2021. Um, the, the, you know, the, and, and one of the main databases, and I'd be, a lot of people hear this database, I'll say a little bit about it, but it wasn't just this VARES database, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is mainly a U.S. CDC FDA thing, but they will also take in, you can, you can streamline the data by U.S. and international, you can put international data. You've got that system, you've got the U.K. yellow card system, the European Huge Vigilist System, and you've got the World Health Organization. You can go and Google this yourself. The World Health Organization is, uh, has a database on all these things as well. And, and, and the, in the, the synopsis from all these databases is that vaccines over the last 20 years and adverse events like this, and then it goes like this with COVID. It does a hockey stick. And right? for, for all and of so those the, not reporting just, systems. In for every all one of them. those databases, that signal is there. If you compare previous vaccines, all comers, and look at adverse events over time, and then you just look at COVID vaccines, in every one of those databases, there's a signal, like I just said, where it, it was you know safe, 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 and then boom, right? And, and not every, every adverse event that's there is, is due to the vaccine. That's not yeah. what we're saying. But the point of these systems, the point of the VAERS system is specifically to act as a signaling system. It's to capture right. concerning signals that happen post-marketing. It doesn't, it doesn't give you causation, but it tells you, well, you got to look at this. Oh, we got to go back to the drawing in the original trial. Like for instance, the teenagers. Yeah. Well, I mean, to put it, you know, for the, for the teenagers, in the when they did the, did the vaccine uh, for the 11 to 17 year olds, that was based on a trial of less than 2000 kids. So in a trial of less than 2000 kids, you might not pick up even one case of myocarditis, right? So you need signaling systems, uh, database systems to capture these post marketing things because you might find them mm -hmm. to, to compare what the CDC did with uh, a case into susception, which is this rare thing that happened in kids with a small bowel sort of telescopes on itself and can cause a blockage. 15, one, five cases of intussusception led to a discontinuation of the rotavirus vaccine, right. you know, and now we've got a virus system that has internationally, I just looked at it today, over 1.2 million adverse events, 30,000 deaths associated with these things, you know, um, and so that signaling system has shown that there is something there and, 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 and that not, those numbers 
are much, much smaller because those are all passive surveillance systems compared to Pfizer's own phase one trial data, the active surveillance system. You can see, you know, this passive is, is only capturing a fraction. And if you look at, okay, what is the underreporting factor? We've got things like the Harvard study that, you know, before COVID showed that VAERS picks up only one to 10%. Um, but we've got people like Dr. Uh, um, uh, people like Steve Kirsch, who have looked at this from multiple factors and found, you know, a, a fudge factor of 43. So you need to multiply all those adverse events by 43. And the, 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 um, so if you've got a, you know, a million adverse events, you're talking 43 million actual adverse events internationally. The Department of Defense, there are these whistleblowers that just testified in front of the Senate a few, um, uh, few weeks ago. Um, their fudge factor underrepresentation is at least 10. So we know that that is an underrepresentation of at least, at least 10. And, and yet, you know, we're not even allowed to go and, and sort of dive in. Like, why haven't we pulled out every child? I mean, I, 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 last I looked at this, there were like 30 kids in that system. And they haven't, you know, CDC wasn't willing to, to, to link these to, 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 even though temporally they happen, these deaths happen within 24 to 48 hours, we're willing to call a spade a spade in this instance, right? Um, and then you see what they're doing here in terms of just, you know, we, we're going to go to court to try to not let these data come out. Um, and so, so you know, that, that, that should tell everybody. This sounds bad, right? I mean, to a very scientifically uneducated mind, this looks very bad. Um, and, and one thing I'm, I mean, if we look back at the numbers again, we have 1,200 and what was it, 23 um, deaths following COVID vaccination. In um, this 1,223. Yeah. And that's, that's of the, what was it, 43,000 adverse events or that's something, right. right? And we don't know what that 43,000 is out of. So we don't really know. Um, how many people got the vaccine and then died afterwards? We don't we don't know that. But 1,223 sounds like a lot to me, right? And then you've you've given some statistics about some of the other um, vaccines that were pulled or other drugs that were pulled as a result of having much lower incidence of adverse events, right? And I think there's a really interesting and important conversation to be had about well, why is this happening from a regulatory point of view? Like, why is Pfizer not noticing this, taking up this data and saying, hold on, let's let's stop the rollout of these things until we figure out if there's a causal connection here, if so, what it, what it is and fix it. But the thing I find almost more sort of interesting is why does this not mattering to the average person? So what I'm hearing from people, whether they're, um, you know, sort of average people chatting on social media or physicians or scientists is that, um, I don't know. I know a bunch of people who are vaccinated and they all seem fine. Mm. So, right. I guess one question is, why is that? Why are some fine and others aren't? Mm. Um, and is it the case that all of the ones who seem to be fine are fine? Right. This strikes me as being, you know, we're seeing the mandates lifting now across the country and across the world, as you've mentioned. And I think people who have even been very worried about you know, the vaccines and, and the vaccine mandates, not just from a medical point of view, but from a political civil liberties point of view are kind of rejoicing and thinking, oh, phew, okay, we kind of, we, we won that one, we're free now, we're, we're done with this mandate stuff. Um, but, I mean, it, are, are we as over this COVID situation or the vaccine worry situation as we seem to be because this recent data from Pfizer makes it look like we're not, right? I, I think the, the there's, there's so many directions to go there. You raised so many good points. 
the um, we, we are going to be living with the sequelae, the side effects of of all of our pandemic um, lockdowns and lockdowns, masking. Um, masking, school closures, um, you know, the, um, the, the, the extreme coercion to take these vaccines to keep your job. Um, you know, talk about doing harm to the vaccine movement. I mean, um, you know, so, so now you, you know, you force us down, down this road, you know, you've gone out your way legally to even show us that these things are causing side effects. Like, how am I supposed to trust anything that comes out of big, big pharma anymore? But these, the, the you know, the, so, you know, your there's, that, there's that, well, there's that relationship between the patient and family now that's been, has been just, just destroyed. I mean, I'm, I don't even think all my, my, my physician colleagues totally appreciate this, but because most, most I, I, I get to see it from the perspective, same as you, you know, people who are afraid to go to see physicians now because they're not vaccinated, they think they're going to get yelled at, um, or, or, um, they, they, they got vaccinated and now they're not sure about the booster or they're not sure about it in their child. Um, and, and they're, you know, so they're, and they're being, being told certain things. So there's that dynamic. I mean, look at, look at the removal of, um, patient exemption forms. I mean, I've always been able to write a vaccine exemption form for, for, for kids, you know, they're not very common, but I absolutely have children in whom, you know, um, there was a relationship in, 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 in time between the vaccine and an adverse event. So you're not going to put a family through that again, if they ask you not to, you know, you go through the risks and benefit, you say, well, you're not getting your MMR vaccine. This is what this means for you. Um, but the flip side is, you know, um, your daughter was talking and walking before the onset of the autism and, and you guys can't separate that. And, 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 you know, now I'm starting, you know, so, so I, I'm going to write your, your vaccine exemption letter. Um, I've got other kids who, who I follow with neuroinflammation They're, They have adverse inflammation that contributes to their seizures and to their disease. So why would I give a vaccine that's going to cause inflammation if their overall risk from the disease itself is, is, is basically zero. Right. And so, you know, they, but you've got to present the risk benefit and then you let the family make what's the right choice for them. Cause everybody's got, got, you know, I, I'm not. Wait a minute. Are you talking about informed consent? Informed it sounds consent, like a lot right? like you're talking about. Exactly. We're, we're <laughs> we don't not do this anymore. Do, do we? We, we, we? We're not even. So, I mean, nobody's got informed consent because we now have evidence that these companies have gone out of their way to hide informed consent from us. And yet we're still um, supposed to be giving them the benefit of the doubt um, along that line. Um, and meanwhile, based on a lack of informed consent, our officials are trying to uh, take away patient autonomy and force these uh, upon us or use coercive measures to try to convince five to 11 year old parents that they should, you know, parents of five to 11 year olds that they should get the vaccine, um, you know, when, when, when these things are still being actively hidden. So that part of it is going to be generated, you know, decades and generations. And then you've got all the, the unknown. I mean, if this really does have an effect on our immune system, if this really is going to lead to an increase in cancers and autoimmune and fertility. And, and fertility and all these other things that, that, you know, still remain very much unknowns, but everything we've, we've obtained in the last six months suggests it's more of a concern than, 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 than they were letting on six months ago. Um, that's good. That, that could be forever. And, you know, take us back to a second. We have long-term, you know, safety data, right? We've got like six months in adults, one year in adults, you know, and as you see, it's hidden, you know, Pfizer itself is trying to hide these data, um, you know, including, uh, we won't even, I won't go into that, that row, but they're, they're, they're hiding, hiding these data. Um, I just totally lost my train of thought on that one. You have to you have to cut this thing out. <laughs> we'll cut it out. But um, you know what? I want to. I won't keep you definitely. And my, my daughter's going to wake up from her nap. But um, I did want to ask you about like what are you seeing in the practice of medicine right now? What are you seeing in teenagers, five to eleven year olds? Um, 
I guess three things, like what are you seeing in terms of their incidence of COVID and, and, and whether they're getting sick or how sick? What are you seeing in terms of vaccine uptake and the possible effects of that? And then what about some non-physical things? I mean, I mean, how are kids doing over the last couple of years mentally and socially? It's kind of a complex question. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I'll take the last one first. The, um, there has been an enormous amount of of psychiatric illness um, since COVID's come around. We've got that quantified. I mean, I've seen uh, presentations at the University of Calgary, for instance, where um, uh, before, you know, in the first year, um, depression and anxiety had doubled. So one out of five kids, one out of five, and it had been sort of one out of 10. So one out of every five kids um, is dealing with anxiety, depression, um, and suicidality um is up through the roof too there are studies you know where they've asked teenagers and a lot of them had had contemplated this thing i mean i uh, i've certainly seen um you know it's it's, it's tough i don't want to things that i see anecdotally at work you know you, you know you don't want to you know you have bad month you see a bunch uh, uh, but you, you don't want to extrapolate that to the so i'm trying to use you know those bigger data but in terms of the psychiatric illness it's it's been enormous my clinic um our neurology clinics um are all filling up with neuropsychiatric disease um as a result of these things, um, you know, we've, we've terrified our kids, um, for generations. I, you know, well, I was going to ask when, you, I mean, what do you think the main source of the depression is among children? Is it social isolation? Is it that they are terrified of the virus or terrified of something else or. Yeah, I think it's going to be different things for different kids. I think the big thing for teenagers that I saw was the social isolation. You know, the, 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 my younger kids were able to still go to school through a lot of it, but the teenagers were for that first year, a lot of them were, were completely cut down. I mean, I've seen teenagers who, you know, they, you know, uh, excited to wear their prom dress and they weren't able, they weren't able to have a prom. I mean, they walked across the stage on a zoom iPod iPad and their parents waved to them from the other side. I mean, that's how um, they weren't, you know, so you, you, we, we all know, remember what it was like to be a teenager and the importance of, um, of, of developing with respect to your peers. And, and that's been completely removed. So that isolation, I think, um, and the lack of, of socialization has been part of it. And that also includes, I think, the masking um, aspect of it, but certainly the, those, those isolations. Are there, are there kids um, that, are, that are terrified of, of the virus itself? Absolutely. And that is, that is failed policy. There is no reason why we should have children, teenagers, walking around afraid of COVID. It, it, it's just, it, that, that should not have happened. And we, that, that fear message still goes. I don't know about where you are, but here, uh, you know, and I'm in London and you see um, teenagers, adolescents walking around, you know, they're about to catch the bus or they're just walking, not with any other people. Uh, you know, maybe another person is a couple blocks away, but they're wearing a mask and they're looking down at the ground and they just look miserable, you know, and um, I was out walking the dog the other day and we ran into a little girl about 10 and again, nobody around and she was wearing a mask and then gave us a very wide berth to make sure she didn't come in contact. So this idea, this fear has really, has really captured them. And I think also the messaging that you could be the vector that kills your grandmother, right? I mean, we've really- That, that story, you could be the kid that kills your grandmother. That was so maddening to me. Um, and it still is, but even before the vaccine, and as we just talked about, it doesn't stop transmission of Omicron, but even before that, um, we knew that kids themselves were not very good at transmitting the disease. There's physiological reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, 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 and there are dozens of studies. I, I cited a lot of them in, in that paper I wrote in September. There's a full um, website on the University of St. Louis uh, showing all these studies that, that kids have not, done, have not contributed to that. Sweden did not close its schools, did not cause masking. No children or, or teachers have, have, have died. Well, conveniently, we haven't heard very much about Sweden lately, right? I mean, they did, they did not adopt the public health measures that we did, or at least not to the same degree. And mm. then now we haven't heard very much about them. But I've not seen any evidence to suggest that they fare any worse than, than we do or that we have. They, but I think quite possibly the opposite. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this, the, the cold notes on that one is that um, when, the, when the messaging worked in their favor, the mainstream media and, um, and the people pushing this, we heard about uh, uh, them as, as, as a, you know, being as fear monger, but it, it's been, so what they, what they showed was that because they didn't shut things down, um, you know, this was right when the original Wuhan and, and the first variant were going through, um, the virus ended up um, affecting a large portion of its population, uh, including its kids. And, and, uh, and, and we knew, um, and this is you know, only now starting to be acknowledged by the other side, but natural acquired immunity, of course, is gonna be superior to a vaccine that only produces immunity to one portion of the virus. Mm. Um, as a result, when Delta and these other variants came, a large portion of Swedish population had natural acquired immunity. So, and so they, so they have not- this That thing you just said, I don't think that is well known or well understood, right? <laughs> so this idea that there's a difference between vaccine-induced immunity and natural immunity, and that vaccine-induced immunity is, is, is not as good because it's more specific, and therefore you're still vulnerable to other strains, right? With, with respect to this vaccine, absolutely, right? I mean, generally speaking, on our, on our normal sterilizing vaccines that we all got as children, um, you, know, you know, once you get it, you've got um, immunity for 18, 20, your, your whole life. Um, we, we knew that there's papers with SARS-CoV-1, um, which happened, I was in Hamilton when this came out in 2003, I remember. Um, but there's a nature paper showing that 17 years later, people still had immunity to, to it as well. So we have um, th this idea that our, 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 innate, our immune system that we we're born with, that has allowed us to survive for millennia on this, on this earth, um, uh, you know, the, the unknown, well, how long is it going to be? Well, we're only two years in. So we have people who got COVID two years ago who now we can say, yeah, they didn't get COVID again. Um, but then the, the vaccine, this particular vaccine only gives you immune response to one. And we know based on their boosters and the data we just talked about that that's time, time limited. And it looks like maybe there is some evidence suggesting that there may be some vaccine induced enhancements. So it could possibly coming worse. But the, the big issue for that is that, you know, the, the, the official the officials still here in Canada is, uh, is that, you, you know, if you've had COVID, you should still get the vaccine because there's some additional boosting from the mm -hmm. vaccine in your immune system. Um, but what we're seeing with, with Australia and these other populations, you can even look at these differences in Ontario to Alberta. Ontario, you guys got hit way harder than us in, in the earlier signs of COVID. Um, what these lockdowns and, and so forth did were they, they sort of delayed exposure. You know, so, you know, there are some evident, you know, countries like Australia, South Pacific countries where they, you know, they were going for zero COVID. Well, and they got 85% protected and then they opened up and now they started seeing COVID. They just delayed, delayed the inevitable that you're going to come into contact. So the hit against Sweden at the beginning was that they were maybe seeing more deaths than other countries early on. But what it's proven, this was like four months ago, I, I looked at this data more closely and, and, and it, it changed. They were now, there was, as you pointed out, no benefit. Um, um, for any of the policies that the other countries in Europe had done compared to Sweden. And Sweden was now in a better situation because more of its population had, had obtained natural acquired immunity. 
and they were not getting very, very sick with, with things like the Delta variant when it came through and, and Omicron. Uh, and they didn't do any of the harm by closing their schools and, uh, and, and so on. And, and they haven't used any of the vaccines. They, they've, de they've denied this for five to 11 year olds. Um, there's a lot of Scandinavian countries that have actually pulled them for 30 year olds plus Japanese. Uh, Japan has pulled it for three year old plus um, be, be, because of you know, the, the, the data that they've had. And you know, interestingly, like almost going full circle to where we started this conversation, you know, about that focus protections, right? Um, we, we, we did a horrible job protecting our most vulnerable, which were our senior citizens. And, um, and those people who spoke to the focus protections, like the Great Barrington Declaration, the physicians who wrote that, um, they've been sort of proven right with time that that was, that was sort of the way to go. Now we've got these models all across the world showing it. But instead of having a, an, a, um, an honest conversation with the data, a conversation with those people who are still pushing um, the vaccine, come and speak to um, any of us who are showing, or you know, just just give us an explanation for why we should be ignoring what's happened in, in Sweden, UK, and Israel. You know, Israel's onto their fourth shot, and it and it didn't it didn't help with Omicron. Can we can we talk about this, especially with these unknowns in the context with with what we know about this vaccine? particular we should not be in my opinion offering this to children right now um, and so we are just not looking at that and we're not learning from our mistakes and it seems like we're purposely keeping our head down in, in at least at least a lot of it you know you, you commented on your friends non-interest in this stuff and i think that that generally most people are feel like that um, but it's 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 our you know, are those making the decisions? Are admin, our bureaucrats, government? You know, they're the ones that need to have these data. And I know for a fact, having spoken to some of them, that they're not aware of some of the things in their own Alberta database. Like it's just, it, it's not, um, it's not, not apparent. Uh, but I will say, I'm going to end. I like, I want to get this one quote in by Albert Bourla because um, Albert Bourla is the CEO of Pfizer, and uh, he, uh, uh, as you you remember, I, I, you know, there's a. We were told very explicitly these are not experimental. And in my letter in September, I used that experimental term and I alluded to the Nuremberg Code, which were the trials after World War II, where um, the use of experimental um, medical interventions led to, um, well, uh, uh, legally, these people were placed in jail and some of them were executed as a result of it. And so, of course, experimental um, did not, people didn't like that term experimental. And so, whether the government's calling this experimental or not, let's just you know, put it in the context that, you know, these things were rolled out in three to six months. It usually takes 10 plus years to get the, the long-term surveillance. So, you know, by definition, these things had to be experimental. You know, we learned things like Moderna should be pulled, as we talked about for younger kids because of the myocarditis. Like we're learning with time, the six month data, you know, the one year data, we don't have any data on the repeated dosing, right? I, you know, maybe, maybe one in two doses of the vaccine are fine, but maybe being boosted for five years every four months is really, really bad. Well, Albert Bourla said, recently, um, it was counterintuitive because Pfizer was mastering, or let's say we had very good experience and expertise with multiple technologies that could give a vaccine. mRNA was the technology that we had less experience with, only two years working on this. And actually mRNA was a technology that never delivered a single product until that day, not a vaccine, not any other medicine. So it was very counterintuitive. So now we have the Pfizer CEO who's admitted a lot over the last couple of months, um, now admitting that they didn't have a lot of experience themselves. This was the first time that an mRNA delivery system like this had been put to use. Never mind that it had never been used in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, so using this in, in cancer trials to deliver whatever is very, very different from giving it to everybody in the world in the middle of a pandemic. 
So now these people are starting to admit that, yeah, that, you know, they're, and, and this is, this is known. I mean, science is never settled and it's especially never settled in the middle of a pandemic where we're learning. And, and, and that's why this has been so tough because why are you being so aggressive with anybody who's pointing out facts that exist on your own websites? You know, and now, now it's okay to admit these things, but you know, three months ago, that was hardcore misinformation. And now it's just like, yeah, of course that's that, that's true. And it's normalized. And, and Eric, I thank you so much for chatting with me today. I think it's so interesting and, and important to get all of this out in the open on the, the topic of the Bourla quote. Um, what I hear, though, often from people, our public health officials or from the average person is that, well, that's a great thing that science has gotten to the point where we can expedite these processes and churn out life-saving medications so quickly. Right. Um, but I think, and I think that's excellent. But then if you're going to do that, you need to put the surveillance in place and have the honesty to look at your data with time to make sure you're not causing more harm than good. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. A lesson we keep hearing and hearing from people like you, but we've got to figure out how to uptake it to the right decision makers. Right. And, and I think that we but we have to continue this kind of educational work and keeping these discussions going because I think a lot of people in their own mind are starting to have doubts. You know, they were on board with the two dose thing and now they're thinking five, six and Trudeau has ordered how many of these things at the cost of what and starting to wonder what's, what's going on and whether or not our approach is the best one. So thank you so much for helping to talk through all of this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed watching this video, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the democracyfund.ca slash donate.